Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Redavid. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining in to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. I'm, I'm John Fisher here with my colleague and partner, uh, Jordan or David. Jordan, introduce yourself to everyone. Everybody, thank you for joining us. It's a pretty exciting day. John and I have been talking about getting this podcast off the ground for quite a while, and we've had some other things going on and finally had the ability, the time, and the resources, and the team to get this done. So it's a big, big day for us, and we're excited for those of you who are able to join us. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the benefits that we have is like we're, uh, you know, relatively younger lawyers in the game, I would say, although we may be getting quite a bit seasoned now in our experience and whatnot. But, you know, we have a, a fresh perspective and have learned from some of the best that want to, you know, give any knowledge that we can have to, to others as well. Yeah, I think as this podcast continues to mature and evolve over time, we'll find a variety of different ways where hopefully we can give value to like-minded practitioners on the plaintiff side maybe even some of those on the defense side, open their eyes a little bit. And of course, for the people out there, out there who are just generally curious about plaintiff personal injury law or how these cases work, you know, this is not legal advice and we're not starting an attorney client relationship, but you know, this should be informative and entertaining and hopefully educational. So, you know, I was talking to John before we went on the air and I felt like it's not going to be the norm where every week we just come out of a two week trial and we get a good winning verdict for our client we happen to be in that position now and it coincides with this inaugural episode. So John, maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about the Marsha Gonzalez case. We just tried it down in Miami Dade County. Maybe give them a little background to catch them up to speed. Sure. Um, yeah, we just, uh, like Jordan mentioned, we just had a trial down in Miami in front of judge Butch go, uh, and it ended up being a seven day trial, which was a new experience for us because the, the trials that we had, I've never had a trial over five days. Um, uh, basically, it was a crash back in 2018. Our client was a passenger in an Uber. Um, she was T-boned uh, pre-suit. Before the case got to us, the the at-fault driver ran a red light, tendered the policy limits, but there was an uninsured motors claim. Um, Uber had uninsured motors coverage at that time. So the claim went, um, it was against Progressive. And we were not the original lawyers in the case. Uh, there was a case that um, another lawyer who had used to work for us uh, had a firm. They had filed suit. And then, you know, when he kind of uh, came back to join, he wanted to bring this case with us. And that was kind of one of the reasons he, you know, came back as well, giving us the opportunity to work this case up. So, um, you know, great you know, client. I was going to say, as you say that, it makes it reminds me of the reality that I don't want to take for granted, which is, you know, obviously most people can conceptualize a person gets in an accident. A person hires a lawyer, that lawyer pursues the at-fault driver for the accident, and it seems pretty linear. But in a case like this involving Uber, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that there's potentially two, or at least at the time, two buckets of insurance from which to make our client whole. Obviously, you have the at-fault driver, which you talked about, and their insurer did the right thing early. But then you also have UM insurance, and UM stands for uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. And John, maybe you can just explain to the audience just a little bit for those that don't know what the role of that insurance is and, and how common it is in, in our experiences. Sure. Um, 
basically in Florida, um, and I'm sure it's like like in, in other states as well, is that when an individual that hits you, they have a certain monetary amount of insurance. Although it's not required in Florida uh, because we are a no-fault state, we have personal injury protection. So not everyone carries bodily injury coverage. So as responsible drivers, what people should have is they should have their own uninsured motorists. And that that is insurance that that's kind of steps in when the person that hits you either doesn't have enough insurance to cover you or doesn't have any insurance at all. And, you know, so in, in this scenario, the person that hit Miss um, Gonzalez had $100,000 of coverage. The uninsured motorist was a million dollar policy above the 100,000, which afforded our client the opportunity, you know, because she had, you know, pretty significant orthopedic injuries and ultimately a traumatic brain injury uh, to, to go forward and go after that additional amount of insurance. So they, they kind of stand in the shoe. So it's, it's a really, you know, it's, it's not unique in the sense that, you know, most claims involving, well, it's unique in the sense to, to motor vehicle crashes, but, you know, it's not unique in the sense that, you know, many states have it and it's really something that everyone should have. Um, and in Florida, you, you get it unless you reject it. So if you get bodily injury coverage, if you don't reject uh, UM, you have it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way that people can have additional protection when they're in these crashes to get compensated. And that ultimately was the claim. We filed suit against Progressive Insurance Company for those benefits for Ms. Gonzalez. Um, and ultimately, we found ourselves in a, in a courtroom when we could finally get there. Yeah. So just for like, you know, conceptually for the for the audience, you know, the at fault driver was not really a part of this lawsuit in any material way and had really nothing to do with trial insofar as it was just progressive standing in the shoes of that driver. Uh, but liability was not at uh, at issue. It wasn't disputed. In fact, this is a an interesting case because so many of the issues were not really disputed. Right. Who's at fault? Was our client actually injured? Those things are often disputed, even in automobile cases. But when they're not, I think some people have a habit or a tendency to view that as, oh, this is great. I mean, the defense is just ticking things off of our list and and uh, removing hurdles that we have to jump. And I think on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, it also puts the defendant, in this case, an insurer, uh, in a pretty sympathetic position. But, you know, when they show up, they're not fighting tooth and nail over everything. They look eminently reasonable. And they're telling the jury from day one or the court is through a preemptive charge, look, nobody disputes that the other driver's at fault. Nobody disputes that the plaintiff's hurt. And so it puts us, I think, uh, back in the crosshairs to say, well, then what's the dispute here? And I think right from opening statement, and I definitely don't want to skip over jury selection, but I think you know, right from opening statement, that became clear to the jury. They didn't even dispute the orthopedic injuries, the broken ribs, you know, the, the broken shoulder, a portion of a broken neck. It was only a dispute about whether she had a brain injury and if so, the extent of it. And that really, I think, was a benefit for the defense. And ultimately, in my opinion, I think what helped keep the verdict down because it made Progressive look eminently reasonable that they weren't nitpicking through everything. They were just focusing on the big ticket item. But before we get there, let's actually uh, jump back. So you said this case was tried in Miami-Dade County. We were in front of Judge uh, Beatrice Butchko. And, you know, I think, I don't know what your experience is. My experience is the following. In order to have a successful trial, and, and that's a subjective measure, of course, you need to be prepared yourself and you need to have your case in chief go off without a hitch. But I think you also need competent defense counsel. I think, you know, it's like any competitive environment, whether sports or in the courtroom, if your competitor uh, is of a high quality, a high caliber, and he or she or they 
are putting on an A performance, I think it elevates your game. I think that definitely happened here. We can explore that. And also you need a judge, not just a judge who's going to sit and judge impartially, which she obviously did, but some, I mean, she listened feverishly, was taking notes incessantly, and she was right on the ball, uh, whether or not we won the objection or not, but she was, she was doing everything that we would want of a judge. So, John, maybe you can take us back since you're the one that did voir dire. You know, we showed up to court um, in 2022 to try this case. And you were voir dire on a 2022 uh, on a 2018 accident, and so there's a delay there. So maybe you can catch us up from you know the time we took over the case, uh, what delays there were from COVID and everything else to even get this case into the courtroom where you could start picking a jury. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is that generally the longer cases tend to go, the worse they get. You know, this case was kind of the opposite. It was like the longer this case went on, actually, the better it got. Um, we were originally set for trial. We got brought in early or late 2019. We got we were set for trial in 2020. They wanted a continuance because, you know, we started getting she started seeing a neurologist. They wanted to have a DTI MRI, you know, all of these um, the things that were suggestive of a brain injury. So they, they asked and said, look, we need additional time to have that happen. So they moved um, for continuance. And then obviously it got continued. And we all know what happened in March of 2020, which was everything shut down. So. Um, yeah. But it's also interesting too, because the whole court, I mean, court shut down for everybody statewide. My presumption is probably nationwide for some period of time. And I don't know about you, but you know, as a trial lawyer, if I'm not getting into court, with high enough frequency, I start getting anxious because uh, this is what I want to do. This is how I feel like we can best add value to our clients. And our clients are sitting there doing everything they need to do. Like in this case, Marsha was getting all of her treatment, you know, uncovering new medical issues and, and making sure she was getting properly evaluated. But on our, on our side of things, there's only so much you can do until you try the case. And so I was really grateful to the court system and the judge and, even, and the other side to make this case one of the first ones tried on the other side of the pandemic yeah i mean it we you know it was one of those cases that we were special set for january and then we had that that random uptick uh i forget the strain of of covid jordan you might remember what it was um that i can't keep up with them anymore all i know is it seemed like every time the door was about to open it got slammed shut again right. and with good reason but you know yeah. anecdotally when by the time we tried this case uh, masks were not a factor, you know, some of the cases we tried earlier, the first case we tried after the pandemic, right? Witnesses had masks. We had to have them unless we were in a certain position, taking proper precautions for people and their safety. But this actually felt a little bit more like a pre-pandemic case when push came to shove, right? I mean, we didn't have any of the masks or shields. And I think, you know, putting putting the health component aside, because we have to defer to the experts on that. We're not that. We just go by what they say. I think from a human communication side, it's really nice when we can speak to people without that interference uh, from a persuasion standpoint. Yeah. And that, yeah, I, I agree. And it, it did feel, I mean, we finally got the, it was in the, you know, for those of you who haven't been to the Miami courthouse, the first few levels of courtrooms, they're the large courtrooms. Once you get up into the upper levels are the really small courtrooms. So this was the first one that we had been able to try in the larger courtroom, uh, which was very nice um, to have that, larger opportunity rather than feeling like you're in a sardine can trying to try a case standing over top of witnesses like you know defense and plaintiffs are right next to each other you know so that was something that i enjoyed um you know learned a little bit about the history about you know the miami-dade courthouse but yeah actually you saying that reminds me it's funny you decompress from trial you forget so much until you're reminded but 
you're right. I remember when Judge Butchko started Wadir, she was actually educating the panel on the history of the courthouse. How it was coming up, I think, on a century of being in use and what it used to be and all that. And the irony was every day we stopped at 12 sharp punctual for a lunch break. And every day we walked down those courthouse steps and to our left or right, whichever way we exited, there's all these cranes building what I'm assuming will be a brand new, beautiful courthouse. But I don't know about you, but I take away from that the case a lot of things, one of which on a personal level is a level of, grat- a level of gratitude to be able to have tried one of the last cases in that historic courthouse in one of the more historic courtrooms. That was a, that was a nice experience for me. Yeah, it was, um, you know, so, so when we were able to finally get, I think we got the call for this trial the Thursday before we were originally set in January, uh, we were supposed to go special set for a few months, uh, and then the Thursday before, and then the Friday, ultimately they pushed it because of the COVID spike COVID concerns. Our judge was very receptive to trying the case, but I think some of the other judges, the admins judges just said, look, can we push this? And then with any difficult of a case that you know, your special said, I mean, there's cases you get pushed back and then there's other cases in the next month. And it's a lot you know, of so, hurry up and wait. Yeah, we had we had. A, yeah, we had an opportunity to get in and that's what we did. And, you know, Jordan was in Atlanta, so he flew down um, and we kind of took a very, you know, I think we had what? between defense and plaintiff 13 experts um not to say that that's too many in one one context but a lot to you know it was a lot of work we had we had built this case up prepared this case to try it only a month or two earlier two months and couldn't do it so we kind of put it to the side a little bit focus on other things then yeah i think it was a thursday morning early morning you sent me an email says we're going monday i had to drop everything pack my bag pack my suits get on the next flight out kiss my kids and wife goodbye and hit the road which you know, that's, that's the life of a trial lawyer. And I'm, and I'm grateful for the family I have to support me like that. But, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking all of this talk about getting to trial, getting to trial. And I realized uh, in doing so, I'm overlooking something that was a little bit unique for us. You know, we've tried many cases before this, but we had never actually committed the resources to do a comprehensive quantitative data analytics focus group. Uh, and, you know, we, we have done focus groups in the past We've commissioned them ourselves on other cases, but this was the first time we went out and we spent a substantial sum to have someone who knows what they're doing, who is a lawyer, him and his wife. And they went out and they canvassed, what was it, John? Like more than 400 people across the country. Yeah. And this was a really interesting experience because obviously the focus group of case, you know, it's common sense to say the participants need a presentation of both sides. And the way that this particular company did it, most of the presentation was through uh, written. But we had our client give a statement and we really gave the, de- the defense the benefit of the doubt on all the quote unquote favorable evidence for them to really get the accurate data. And what I found was the data was incredibly specific, <laughs> targeting on things that uh, you and I perhaps in prep were overlooking or not elevating to the level that they should have been. I don't know. What was your opinion on some of that data that we got back before we got to try the case? Yeah, it, it was very insightful because we took, so one of the issues that was not before the jury was whether or not our client was wearing a seatbelt, right? There was allegations that she may not have been wearing a seatbelt in the rear passenger. Now she's not required to, you know, but we had gotten a, a summary judgment ruling based upon uh, uh, an untimeliness of evidence submission by the defense. And we got summary judgment on our favor, but we ran the focus group as if she wasn't wearing a seatbelt, right? So we, we kind of added some negative effect. It was that at that time, we didn't know if it was going to come in or not come in. So we ran it without it, or with it being our client was not wearing a seatbelt. 
and then with some other negative facts. And so the, what we were, were able to see, you know, kind of, you know, what was interesting is that the amount, sometimes the amount of money that you asked for that was higher got less favorable results. And then, you know, so they ran them like in different ads, different cycles, but then you get to see like people's open-ended comments about your case. Right. Like, yeah. I agree. That was to me the yeah. most compelling. That's, that's the jurors that you always want to know what they're saying. You never know if the actual jurors are telling you the truth. When you do a focus group like this and you get an Excel document with page after page of the jurors own typed messages, I agree. That was really insightful. Yeah. And, and what they thought, what they thought about the client, like, like, so it's like, these are the things we need to focus on. These are the things that we need to stress. This is what important. This is what's not important. Some things that you may think, um, I can't think of specifically something that I thought would be important. Um, or they were like, you know, well, what's interesting is they were like, look, maybe you should focus more on the orthopedic injuries, you know, but at trial, it kind of seemed like because the orthopedic injuries are not in dispute, why are we spending so much time talking about them? So, um, you know, so it's a very insightful thing because to, to, to get an idea of like, this is what I thought was bad. This is what I think was good. And, you know, it's, when you try enough cases, I think anybody who's tried cases and for those people listening who aspire to try more cases, I think we all feel the same way, which is we want to be authentic to ourselves and we want to rely and defer on our experience, our past experience in courtrooms to say, this is the type of argument that'll work, or this is the type of delivery or metaphor, whatever. And all of that's great. I think there's tremendous value in experience, but the data doesn't really lie in this context. And so like I, I can share maybe on the other side of the coin. Yeah, it's insightful and all that, but on the other side, it's how surprised I was. So you know, early in my career, I was an assistant public defender in Miami, and I got to try a lot of cases there. And I'm super grateful for that opportunity and the people in that office who trained me. Um, and what I found is when you try case after case after case, there's a habit or a tendency to, to notice what you think the other side perceives is a relevant factor in selecting a jury. And so oftentimes in the criminal context, but still I see it nearly as often in the civil I think a lot of people on the other side and, and our side included, they tend to stereotype or group about race, gender, ethnicity, educational background, you know, national origin. Uh, and I say stereotype in a literal sense, meaning just saying, well, generally, if we're not sure, we'll default to X or Y based on this particular demographic or point of data. And I've always been uncomfortable with that because it's a bizarre way to, to treat the human being. So in this context, the data, if it did anything was it showed us that really didn't matter. Remember, I mean, we, we had said, look, we're trying to this Miami-Dade County. We think the general populace of the Venire might be of this kind of uh, demographic. And the data showed that didn't really matter. Other things did, I mean, to some extent, the educational level, but there were like really specific things. What type of TV shows people watched? I mean, that was really, I thought, like an interesting data point. It was like, if you watch this type of show, you're generally not favorable for our side. If you watch this type of show, you're generally favorable uh, for us or whatever, you know, vice versa. So that was what I found pretty interesting, that it kind of reaffirmed what my suspicion had long been, which is that some of these stereotypical ways of approaching voir dire, or at least the selection process, don't carry weight, and you need to be focusing on other things. And as the person who sat in the courtroom watching you conduct Wadir, maybe we can, you know, flash forward to that point in time. I found that it made, because I've seen you do Wadir, what feels like a million times, even though that's not literal. Uh, and I thought it allowed you to be really focused, really targeted and extract some really meaningful information. So maybe you can talk to the, yeah, about I, I think, you know, to kind of what you said, you know, really in my early in my career, 
you know, I, I did have those stereotypical implications of like who I want. And, you know, um, you know, I, I learned and kind of what, what changed for me, a couple of things, what changed for me is like, look, like Keith Midnick's approach to jury selection, I think is very important. And, and his, his approach to entire trials as well is very important. And we've seen good success having done that. Um, you know, Nick Rowley and his, his approach of like, when everyone comes into the jury room, rather than looking at each person being like, oh, they're going to be bad for me. They're going to be bad based upon those stereotype things that you mentioned. It's like, you believe that everyone in this room given the right opportunity can give you justice, can give you, you know, confidence in, in the right to recover for the client. And, and when you have that mindset, like everything changes, right? Like, you know, you know, yes, I'm in there and yes, I, I, I am looking for some cause challenges, right? I want to find the bad jurors and get rid of them, but you also want to try to build a, a tribe of people together or sincerity with the juror or jurors that you have a connection with. You know, you've seen it. We, we've tried a case and, you know, I will never forget this with a guy I felt I connected with. You were said, no way we can put this guy on the jury. We put him on the jury and he's back there fighting for us, you know? So it, it, it's to me, it's like we're like jury. So like the beginning of the trial, jury selection and opening statement is the most important part of the trial. To me, that's how I'm always going to say. Ask a trial lawyer, their ego probably says closing argument. But I agree. Objectively, looking back over the career, I think Wadir and opening. Opening, yeah, because and so so and it starts with jury selection. Now, in this instance, we had what fifty jurors, or maybe like actually, I think we had more than that. We had people waiting outside because right. tobacco case that was supposed to be tried. So they had a like hundred jurors that were going to come in, and obviously we didn't need that many. So Jordan hired a company, uh, Jury X, I think is the name of the company. Yeah, shout out to Jury X and Mary Sheedy specifically. She's the analyst who came down and sat with us day for day, hour for hour, and helped. But yeah, they were great. By the way, that's another thing we had never done before. Right. And we had, and, and, you know, it, and the reason why we were able to do this is because, you know, we didn't have like, this was a damages only trial, right? So we, we had won on all the, the big issues. So we knew, well, I don't want to say we knew, but we were confident that we were going to win. And it's just a matter of how much, right? So we can kind of invest those resources, you know, in, in, in this particular case to try to maximize that. So we had her in there and, you know, they have their own algorithm, the way they work. And, you know, they came recommended. Um, and, and then she was with us, kind of had an opportunity to do that. And so, you know, I had 75 minutes. It's a shorter amount of time than I would like, um, you know, to talk to 50 people. Let me say, it's great to have a jury consultant. It's a luxury, obviously. It's frankly a privilege to have someone as qualified as her with a company as competent as them to give you the data. And when you end up picking a jury with their input and you have a higher degree of confidence, that that's, that's a snowball process. And that's great. So, you know, working with a jury consultant like Mary and a company like jury X who's super competent at what they do, it obviously gives you a higher degree of confidence when you ultimately pick and impanel a jury than you might otherwise have. And there's a snowball effect to that as the advocate, I think, you know, you're starting with, with more confidence than you might otherwise have. But on a very practical level for the trial lawyers out there or the people who aspire to be one, there's like a functional benefit, which is your ability to pay attention. You know, John's up there asking questions. So we've all been there. If you're doing voir dire, you want to be in the moment. You want to listen, but you also want to plan for what you're going to say next. And you can't really take notes. You're relying on your team members. We tried this case with Keela, who's a monster. She's a great trial lawyer and she's super attentive and she takes copious notes. And I do the same but by having a live feed of the transcript through our court reporter, 
which Mary was then, you know, taking down and her team was taking down. It allows you to have that confidence where, hey, I don't need to scribble down every last word uttered because when push comes to shove on a, on a preempt or a cause challenge, Mary's going to have the timestamp. And it allowed me to listen and get, you know, whether it was handing you up a note or when push, you know, later when we were deciding who to select, it felt like I was allowed to be for the first time in a long time more involved in your voir dire than I otherwise want, you know, usually as a scribe or something, you know? Yeah. yeah and, and honestly, finding out information on potential jurors that we otherwise would not know, right? Like right. we, we wouldn't have that or know, you know, this person is from, you know, does this, or this is their background or sometimes, you know, political affiliations. Like you don't ask these questions of jurors when you're there, you know, because especially in a damage is only with 50 people. I'm just talking about money, how they feel about, you know, economic damage, not economic pain and suffering. Does it go away? And, and, you know, you to have that backdrop and they were, they were, it was pretty correct. Right. Like, yeah. you know, they had someone that was like, put this person on the jury. Jordan said, Jordan had a note that said basically anybody, but this person. Kayla did too. Like we were just like, stay away. Not too much of a risk. Right. And then let's, let's just cut to the chase. Who did that person end up being? The ended up being person. poor person and, you know, was kind of, was fighting for us. Yeah. You know? Far more favorable than we could have anticipated. Right. I think Started the out- data points were this person could go either way, but it's a risk. And Keelan and I kind of interpreted that risk as let's err on the side of caution. When we got to the point where we didn't have the luxury of having certain parameters or not, and it was really like, is it this person or who's coming next? Jury X said, look, have the confidence, select this person. We did. This person ends up getting on the jury. She becomes a four person. And we know now in hindsight, I mean, she's back there fighting to make sure we get the most possible. So it's an imperfect art. It is far from a science, but, you know, I've been talking to people since this trial. I know you have. And, and now what I tell people is I used to feel like it doesn't get better than experience. And the only way you get experience is by doing right. You got to be out there trying cases to be a trial lawyer. And I still hold experience in high regard. But now I realize it's that marriage between your experience in the past, the data that you can collect before and during. And if you can marry those two things together, you're putting your client and yourself in the driver's seat on this thing. And I think the result of trial showed that. Yeah. And uh, I want <laughs> I have to I have to talk about this because it doesn't happen all the time. We've all been there. You've seen panels that are not talkative or too talkative. We've all seen the lawyers out there who treat it like a stand up comedy hour. Um but here's a situation where, you know, you were taking it very serious. You were asking penetrating questions, some of them uncomfortable. And one of the prospective jurors, I remember she got kind of offended. Well, you're asking me to talk about money and I don't know this and I don't know that. And I don't know if I could ever do this and do that. And she basically got to the point where she was telling you in front of the whole room, I don't think you're being fair, Mr. Fisher, with how you're asking me this question and what right. you're asking me to tell you. And then Didn't she said something about like, she like felt like I was like attacking her or something yeah, like she, that. Or she called words to that. Yeah. And what happened Two people over to her right, to our left, uh, a younger prospective juror stood up and in the middle of Wadir interrupted that person and said, no, Mr. Fisher's not attacking you. He's not asking you something improper. You're not properly understanding and basically said he's entitled to this information, treat this process fairly. And it was like a, it's a pretty big moment and they let her go on the jury, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think she wanted to say that, uh, she just wants to know if you can give money for pain and suffering, you know, like that's, that was the idea. I went from medical bills to pain and suffering. And then, you know, it was very, you know, 
It was nice. Good hear you. It's good to hear you say pain and suffering now, because as you, if you check our our notes to you while you were up there, non-economic and economic, economic, non-economic, non-economic. I was teasing you when you were up there. I'm like, these people don't know necessarily what non-economic means, speaking in lay terms. But I know, I know. But, but you look, know, we went through that selection process uh, with Mary right by our side. I think she was an integral uh, team member in that that part. It's not like we defer to her entirely. It's a, it's still a collaboration, but. I think the client ultimately benefited. And, and let's just be real. By the time the jury got impaneled, I think me, you, and Keela, we left that courtroom. We had a high degree of confidence that yeah. we had won the day. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing about trials. Like, really, if you if you feel like you're either even or winning the day, like, that's what I want to have each and every day of trial is that, you know, I come in, this is the time that I'm either going to, you know, what I feel like I, you know, like opening statements you know, and the defense did a really good job in opening statement um, about our case. That was like, you know, like it, it didn't feel like we won, but Let's didn't give a shout out real quick. Cause I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to live in an echo chamber. Lead counsel on the other side, his name is Jaime Baca. He's with the firm Wicker Smith. Uh, and he was the lead counsel for progressive and he's a lot of things. All of them are things people should aspire to be as a trial lawyer. He's a straight shooter. He's an incredible advocate. He's articulate. He's attentive. And now that I have tried this case against him, I can say without hesitation, he is, if not the only reason, the primary reason, I think, why the jury came back with a number as low as they did. And it's hard to ever say 2.5 million is a low number. But in light of what we asked for, which was over 30, it's a, it's a very low number. And I think, you know, hats off to him. You know, we can all be competitors. We're going to see each other in a different case. I think we can. I think we both mutually feel there's a deep level of respect and admiration for his craft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know going into opening statement is like one of what I feel like is the most important thing about trial advocacy, especially being the plaintiff in a personal injury realm is that I don't ever want to lose credibility with the jury ever. Like that is to me, the most important thing is that they think I'm credible. They, you know, who is the, the most credible voice in the room. And so that is why, you know, you know, a lot of it's, you know, hats off to Keith Mitnick and whatnot, but you know, we take the bad facts we try to either make them our facts, you know, put them in context or kind of just eat them. And so that way there's nothing really that they're going to get up and say that we haven't talked about. And even though I had done that in opening statement, the way that he gets up and did his presentation and opening, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was good. It, it made me, you know, like, okay. Have you we ever can before Jaime's opening, had you ever felt sympathetic for an insurance company? I never had. No. And the way that he explained uh, everything to the jury in opening. There was a moment there right from opening. I was like, holy shit. I think uh, this jury might be looking sympathetically progressive. Like they're the victim here. I really felt that. And that's not an easy thing to do. And he's been doing it a long time, but uh, you know, look, it's, I started saying this early in the podcast. When you see your competitor out there, if you're playing basketball, just draining them or whatever, like it might makes you want to rise to the occasion. And I think we did that. And the result reflects that, but um you know, opening statement, you, you mentioned Keith Mitnick. I know you study him a lot and it, it shows you've, you've, you've been able to incorporate a lot of those things, make them your own. Um, I think this is a good thing to talk about briefly because we're all out there, all trial lawyers. We're going to listening to other podcasts. We're reading other people's books. We're going to seminars, CLEs, whatever. And what do you hear universally? You got to be you. You have to be authentic and your genuine article. And I agree with that. But that doesn't mean you can't borrow from a colleague who's, who's come up with something that works and then 
work on it, find a little tweak and then make it authentic for you. And I think, you know, as your partner, I just want to celebrate you and, and give you a little shout out. I've seen you come a long way and where you're at now in, especially in an opening statement. I mean, I have seen in recent trials where the defense lawyer follows you in opening. It says, I know Mr. Fisher just talked about this, but, but I want to talk about it again anyway. And boy, have you just taken the wind out of their sails? Cause now the jury's like, I don't care. I already heard it. So, right. Yeah. Why are you telling me this again? You know? And, and I think that's what makes it very effective is that you take what you already just told them. And I mean, you've seen me when they have Facebook photos and I'm showing them an opening statement. Here's the photo. They're going to show you this. You're going to see this. You're going to see this. Oh, here she is smiling with her child at, a, you know, in another trial. And I was like, but what does this smile not tell you is that was the day that her father came home to hospice. Right. And they never even showed the Facebook photos in trial. Yep. After they intended open, to, I assure you intended, that. But after that, they never even showed them once again, you know? And so like, you know, there, there's ways that, you know, if you if you don't know about these big trial lawyers, like, you know, as younger lawyers ourselves, as that's how I've tried to grow and develop is like learn from the best, see what they do. You know, the CBN is the courtroom viewer network. You can watch these guys in trial. You can see what they do. I mean, I looked at, um, you know, Nick Raleigh's trial against Home Depot that he had. Uh, Jamie Beltran, where, you know, he's describing the brain injury and, and the way he did that opening statement. Like, I like that presentation. So I borrowed pieces of that to, to kind of, and obviously make it our own. So it's. It, it, this verdict is proof that this yeah. kind of thing works. You can cobble together and borrow from colleagues, but as long as you take the time and commit the energy to make them your own, they can work. And, and the client is the ultimate one who benefits here. Let, um, let me let, ask let, you a question. Okay. Because I, I, this yeah. has been like something, I don't know, we could try another hundred cases. I don't know if we'll ever get another case where the jurors, the impaneled jurors asked more questions of witnesses in this case. Okay. So for context for people out there who weren't there, what did we have, John? Like about 20 witnesses, it felt like maybe a little less. I think like with the, with live witnesses, um, maybe it was like over 10, you know, we had some by video. I think we had, uh, four witnesses by video, uh, okay. one on, well, I think three on our side, one on their side, but the rest were by vi by in live presentation. And like, you know, what we, got, we had eight jurors at the time we had two alternates. Right. Mm -hmm. And here we go. We're starting this case now for background. I could probably count on. It wouldn't even take the all five fingers on one hand to count the amount of trials before this one where jurors had asked questions of witnesses during trial. It happens. It's not, you know, for me, it's not common, but it happens. I'm not surprised if it does, but I have never had a case where every single witness, except for one, which we can talk about, but every single witness from start to uh, almost finish got asked more than one question by more than one juror. I think we're up to court exhibit 30 single yeah. page, <laughs> single space handwritten notes by, you know, only witness four. you know, yeah. When, I mean, when our client took the stand, I mean, for instance, one juror had 15 questions yeah. written out. I mean, four pages of paper. And so. By the way, great questions, you know, so let's stop. Let's not just talk in the abstract. Um, you know, these are in the court file, they're public record. Uh, some questions, I mean, you're doing your best live to figure out, is this good for us? Is this bad for us? What does this mean for us? Some of them, it's hard to tell, but some of the questions after our client testified were, you know, do you feel beautiful anymore? Um they asked her, she was a female, our client, you know, I noticed you don't have kids. Do you want to have kids? If so, if not, why not? 
And that elicited a very raw, real emotional moment, as did that question about beauty. I mean, our client talked about some very private matters, about uh, thoughts that have come through her mind. And um, the jurors were just right there with us. You know, at first, I'll, I'll confess, I felt a degree of skepticism. You know, there were like, for example, we put on her father and her brother and her best friend. And these were our before and after witnesses. And at first I was like, oh, the jury's skeptical of them. But it turns out, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, Monday morning quarterback in this thing, they weren't skeptical. If In hindsight, what they were doing, at least in my <coughs> perception, is they just wanted to validate. You know, we were asking for a lot of money. I think we asked for $31 million. We told them in opening. And I think they just wanted to make sure that they had all the information they needed and they weren't getting cheated out of, oh, well, the lawyer didn't get this in. And uh, so kudos to them. You know, a lot of jurors, some of them, we've all been there. They doze off, not this panel, right? I mean, they were edge of their seat, questions asked. Sometimes they would, the judge would read their questions, the witness would answer, and then the jury would have follow-ups. And yeah. so it got to the point, I think, correct me if I'm wrong on this, John, at some point you strategically decided on one of our own witnesses not to do a redirect and you made a comment. I'm not going to do a redirect. because Yeah, I don't think I did any more redirects. I was like, I'm sure the jury has questions. And they did, like for every witness. You know, um, with the exception, let's, of- let's let's just say this: that's the jury getting the information they need. So let's not stand in their way, right? Right, right. And that and that it was interesting, like very very insightful. And in fact, we played. It, it was you know our neuroradiologist was by video. We wanted him live. Couldn't get him there. And they, you know, one of the things they said before we played it was, "We're not going to get to ask this person questions." Right. So they wanted to ask questions. They wanted to speak to the experts, and so. You know, that was that was a very unique experience. Now, they asked questions of every witness, as I recall, every live witness except for one. And what I found really interesting here was so we had rested and the defense was putting on their case. And I don't know if it was at lunch or one of our, you know, late midnight sessions with me, you and Keela prepping for the next day. I think we jokingly had said, you know, wouldn't it be crazy if during the defense's case, the jurors stopped asking questions? And if so, would that be favorable for us? We thought maybe so. Like meaning their mind had been made up. But of course, the first witness goes on, a uh, defense expert, and they ask her a ton of questions. So that didn't come to pass. But the last witness in the case was a big witness for the defense. It was their, you know, rebuttal, essentially their competing radiologist. Uh, and in a brain injury case with brain imaging, I mean, that's a big witness for them. Did not ask the man a single question. Right. And Jaime stood up, ha- as you did earlier in the case, and said, oh, I, I won't do redirect because I'm sure the jury has questions. And then everybody, you know, collectively looks over at the jury with waving eyes and it's dead silent. Like, and they, no, no, questions. No, no questions. So, yeah. And, and we thought that was that was pretty favorable for us that, you know, they had basically made their minds up that they recognized that she was injured, um, you know, kind of the brain injury stuff. And, and I think the jury verdict really reflected that, you know. Um, I, I agree. Can you, um, you know, we're talking about I, I had talked about I think we were prepping, you know, night after night, you, know, you break from trial at five, yeah. you go out, you know, you grab a shower, a bite to eat and some coffee, you're right back at it every night, maybe you and Killer eating dinner, drinking espresso, and then going right back to the war room in our hotel. But maybe you can talk to the jury a little bit. I mean, not even just this trial, all of our trials, um, you know, what it takes to get the case across the finish line, because, you know, we don't shut off at five. Yeah. I mean, I think like, mental like trial is mentally and physically exhausting in the sense that you know when i'm in trial you know everyone's like oh like go to bed early do those kind of things like i'm just not that guy right you know um 
for some of them, they're outside my control, <laughs> but you know, I'm up late. Um, you know, we took two expert depots during trial, one of which was our rebuttal expert by video for preservation. And one of which was the orthopedist for the defense. But, you know, you go home, you get out of trial, you, you get back to the rooms, you go out, get something to eat, you come back and it's like seven 30, you know, you got to go for the next day. And so the benefit of, of like, so trying to maintain that energy, you know, um, so that by the time closing happens, you know, you, or you get through your case, you still have that energy. And, and so it's, it's difficult when you, you're doing that like late night work, um, having to prepare for the next day, but it's beneficial because we're able to split it up. Right. So like, I didn't, you know, this, this is one of the things that, and we'll talk about in a moment, like I struggled with is like, you know, giving a, giving away work to other people. I mean, that's just, that's just my nature. I'm a very, you live with the case longer. Keel and I came in on the tail end and I think most people try cases in teams. I think what's what I see most commonly is two member teams and historically for us, that's what we did. But this is a case with a lot of work, a lot of interesting dynamics at play. And this was an opportunity. We had tried cases with Keel before, but this was an opportunity to bring her in as well. Uh, From an allocation of labor standpoint, I, I think having three people, you know, it's kind of what I want to do from here on out, unless it's a short trial with maybe five or less witnesses. Because, you know, in order to do your job effectively, and I don't know how you feel about this, but you have to have the capacity, the bandwidth has to be there to do it right. And like, even on this trial, I remember we went into it thinking that you were going to be responsible for two witnesses. And the way that the presentation of evidence came out with scheduling, those two witnesses ended up getting backed up onto the same day, which we didn't really think would happen. And so that night before you and I strategically, you know, credit to you for kind of, I think, you're marking and saying, look, I got to prepare this direct, this expert direct. It is an immense amount of work. Yeah, Can you step in and do this cross tomorrow? And yeah. I said, yes. And, and it, But I think, you know, from a preparation standpoint, if I had said no, or we were just stuck in our ways, you know, that would have put you way behind the eight ball. And I think ultimately uh, hurt the client and our presentation yeah. of evidence. And I, and I think being able to do that, you know, kind of like, look, trial's fluid. You got to be flexible. I'm flexible. I try to be. And yeah, I had a, everything got backed up. I was supposed to get the neuropsychologist done on Wednesday. They didn't, I think they had to come back Thursday, but then they were calling the, the, their neurologist out of turn, which was kind of unique because, you know, and, and Jordan can explain is like, you know, tell them like you, we, we, they called him out of turn, but we had listed them on our, our witness list. So we had asked the judge said, fine, but we want to do the examination first. Right. right. Since it, they were calling was, in our case, chief. Yeah, this was, it's not. Un, uh, unheard of, right? You and I have been in cases where the defense, uh, you know, says, "Oh, one of our experts due to scheduling. They're going to be in surgery. They they're only available on date X. We need to call them." And it, they, you know, it's during our case. And obviously, we never want to have our presentation of evidence interrupted and like that. This was uh, different in that you know we did the research and there wasn't much directly on point precluding it. It was this particular witness. She was on our witness list. We have a habit of listing them in an abundance of caution. And we collectively, the three of us decided, look, let's propose. Fine. You can call her out of turn, but we're going to examine her first. That way the jury doesn't pick up on or elevate this person's importance. You know, what's the difference? And there's rules of evidence on it that that permit that and give the judge broad discretion on examination of witnesses. So the defense kind of agreed to our proposal. Fine. As long as we can call her out of turn, then you guys go first. So uh, this particular witness, she is, um, she was an interesting witness. She's not the, the type that has 700 different uh, cases with the same 
insurance company in the last three years. And she's a seasoned vet in terms of expert witness work, but she is uh, very accomplished, you know, outside of expert witness work and doesn't do a high volume of expert witness work, at least not with this defendant. So strategically, we kind of had to figure out, okay, we're calling this person out of turn. We don't want to do the defendant's job for them by conducting their direct, but what can we do that will kind of eviscerate her credibility before the defense can come in and even get her off the ground? And what we decided to do was I read through the depot that John took of her in discovery. And it's a super long depot because it was a super complicated area. And what I found was about what, what amounted to like eight pages collectively of good answers that she gave that were clean, right? Yes or no, with very minimal explanation that were favorable for us. And although there were other answers that we would have loved to get in front of the jury, because it would have been great, I made the decision, look, I'm examining her. I am only going to ask this person. There will never be a question I ask that I don't have a page in line ready to impeach her if she says something different. John got on board with it. Keela got on board with it. And so we, we, we tried it. And I have to say, I don't know how you feel, but as the one doing the examination, I felt like it went exceedingly better than I could have anticipated because all experts, well, I don't want to say all, but most experts just have a natural tendency to not want to agree with what the other side is asking merely because it's the other side asking. And even when it got to the point, what did I impeach her 18 times in a row before you would think the witness would say, all right, I know what's coming. If this guy's asking me the question, he's got the answer. And she never did and kept fighting me. There was a time she's like, Oh, I didn't say that. And all this. And uh, we spoke to one of the jurors after they, they, they agreed to speak with us. And uh, I think their feedback was they kind of just threw her testimony out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the reality was, is, you know, she's, Jordan tries to undersell her uh, expert work. She's worked for progressive 63 times in the last five years on 63 cases. She tried to say she didn't know that. And then she said, well, I don't even know who the defendant is in this case. So I was like, wait, you're getting checks from progressive. You don't even know that. Well, I don't know. I don't know that. Then it turned into, oh, I was attacked by me and Depo and there were like live bullets flying. And that must, you know, when she got impeached, like the last time she's like, oh, that must be when you broke me down, you know? And, and, and so like, I don't think, you know, when she got up in there and, you know, very simple questions and then tried to play the victim card, that didn't go over well. Right. And Jordan, I mean, at one point was like, he stopped doing the whole, you know, uh, you remember giving a deposition in this case. You were there. I was there. Court reporters there. You were under oath. You swore to tell the truth, just like you did in front of this jury. Let's go back to that page. Study 76, line three. You know, he stopped doing that. It's like, doctor, page 83, line four. You were asked. And then she was like, oh, no, but you got to read the paragraph for that. But, you know, and I was like, no, doctor, this is what you were asked. And this was your answer. So it turned her into. You know, there was a discrepancy in the med- one of the medical records of whether our client had pre-existing anxiety or um, what was it, panic disorder that was in a blood order, right? It was in a blood order, not in the actual diagnosis from the doctor. And they were kind of jumping on that because it was a there was an anxiety mental aspect to this case. She actually, because of the of the examination, finally conceded, well, you know what? I will accept that that doctor made an error, that that's an error, right? And there the progressive was using that in their case. So, you know. When you have that, you know, take a good deposition. And I used to not take depositions of CME doctors, right? I'd say they're bound by their report. That's all I need. But I have found Gives you can go, right. You can go and ask questions. Did she, was she hurt? You know, yes or no. What are you going to say? No, of course they're going to say yes. And you move for summary judgment on causation now, you know, or in her instance, she said, by definition, her loss of consciousness. Yes, she had a traumatic brain injury. 
And that was important is because in opening statement, you know, they said, look, saying someone had a concussion is not the same as saying someone had a traumatic brain injury. Well, this doctor in her depot said that a concussion is a traumatic brain injury. It's a type of it. So like it was a very effective presentation. And then there was another scheduling error with the another uh, defense expert. We said, no problem. We'll just we subpoena them. We'll call them. And, you know, they said, look, we're not we're not doing that again. So they yeah, that's when I knew it must have must have gone over well. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't want to make it seem like the trial was was uh, a breeze by any stretch and all favorable. I think we're highlighting some of the, the highlights, which is, you know, what we do. But let's touch on one more thing that sticks out to me as a, as a positive and something that was unique, doesn't really happen in all of our cases. And then I want to switch gears and talk about, uh, in my estimation, some of the reasons why the jury didn't return a verdict as high as perhaps, you know, we wanted. Because uh, I'll confess, there was a degree of disappointment when the number was read for me. But the last part that doesn't happen often, one of the defense experts, we got to conduct our Daubert uh, challenge essentially had a hearing outside the presence of the jury towards the end of trial we had already been in trial for a week um you know we had filed a motion before trial scheduling couldn't allow it to get heard then we were in trial so we finally found a lull and the judge was kind enough to accommodate and she came live and john maybe you can talk about it since you were the one that did the examination argument but you know spoiler alert the defense actually withdrew her before the judge could make a definitive ruling yeah, I think that, you know, live in trial, the judge kind of had some gap in, in testimony for the defense. So just kind of afforded us an opportunity to conduct the Daubert challenge during trial. She witness came in, actually testified and had to admit that she deviated from standardized testing. And when you're doing it was a neuropsychological examination. And when they do that deviation that they basically has, it's not peer reviewed. It's not tested. There's an unknown error rate. Um, it's non-standardized. And doesn't uh, can't say it's generally accepted and based upon all. I mean, those are the Daubert factors. So, you know, the judge initially, I think, was inclined to deny the challenge based upon saying she's qualified. And then obviously with further argument, you know, that it seemed like she was inclined to grant the challenge. And so I think the defense, I mean, look, they have run other cases. They had what they needed, I thought, from one of the doctors. So they, they kind of withdrew the expert. Um, yeah, it just doesn't happen all the time. And again, I think it probably would have hurt them, to be totally honest, if she had been permitted to testify, it's one of those weird situations where uh, you feel like it's a win-win for your client. The judges are going to keep the expert out and we get to move to closing sooner. We already feel good about how the case was going. Or the judge is going to let this witness in. And I just knew in my heart if that, if that happened, yeah, we'd have an appellate issue. Great. But John was going to you know, crush her on the stand, so to speak. And I just thought so it was a win-win. But, you know, again, Kudos to Jaime Baca, right? He realized how the hearing was going and probably made an assessment, is my guess. I didn't ask him that if this is how it was going with no jury in front of a jury, it was going to go probably a lot worse. And so he made the strategic decision to. to yeah. Play. I mean, look, it's like every trial, you know, we, you know, to come back and be able to decompress and go through everything, you know, some things worked out favorably, some things didn't. Um, we actually have a few cases set for trial coming up here in a couple of weeks. So, Jordan, we talked about a little bit about, um, you know, why you didn't think we got more, right? We, you know, as, as lawyers, we always think we, we, we're, we do a better job. And when you convince yourself, especially when I ask for a jury for 31 million, it's like, I have conviction. That's what this case is worth. Right. You know, what do you think, you know, in your assessment of some of the reasons why, you know, we didn't get that full amount or an eight figure verdict or something of that nature? I think there's a multitude of factors. We'll never know all of them, but, you know, for starters, 31 million wasn't an arbitrary number. That's a number that the focus group and data analytics said, gave us the best likelihood for the highest recovery for our client. So that was a strategic decision, but we backed it up with, we broke it down to per damage, uh, 
then we give a time period, you know, daily, then hourly, and how much money is it worth per hour? And I know people do this kind of thing, but here's what I found. We had an ample amount of time in closing to talk about the case generally. I felt like I didn't have enough time as the one delivering closing to drill deep enough to give the, the evidentiary support for some of those hourly numbers. Every juror, as I was talking, I had up the spreadsheet, I had up our calculations, they're feverishly writing, I took breaks so they could write. And I think in the moment that gave me a false sense of confidence that, okay, they're with me here, they're, they're not really looking for me to go deeper. I've gone deep enough, and they're satisfied. But the reality was, I think, in hindsight, I wish I had more time or that I had allocated more time to really explaining how we came up with that bottom number for each itemized category of damages to explain why it was justified. Now, when we went back, they started deliberating. One of the first things they asked for was a, a whiteboard, markers, and a calculator, which I think generally is a positive thing. I think they're doing multiplication and addition, not division and subtraction. But uh, I think in hindsight, I didn't get enough time with the audience to justify the number. And I think that showed with the, with the number that we got. A huge win for our client, multiples of the prior offer, multiples of the policy limits. I mean, objectively speaking, Trying this case was a massive win for the client, and that's got to be priorities one, two, and three. But for us as the advocates who spend so much time you know, investing ourselves in the case, and as you said, I like your word, conviction, believing that $31 million was the number. I remember in closing, I told the jury, this is not the time to negotiate. This is not we set it high, they set it low, and you pick a number in between. This is the bare minimum of what the evidence supports, and they came in woefully short of that. So it's a good learning opportunity for me. I'm still not even done digesting that to figure out how in closing. I, I think I like the model, the formula we gave, but I don't like, I, I want to work on my ability to explain it a little clearer for jurors. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the reality is, is when you're asking for that kind of money and you're the plaintiff looks normal, right? You know, with a brain injury case, you can't see a brain injury. You can see a, a person that's in a wheelchair. You can see that the fact they're paralyzed or, you know, but when a, when a person has a significant brain injury, you can't see it, right? So I think, you know, if we look at some of the negative facts, I mean, she looks normal at trial. She's at a job where she was a statistician beforehand at a, at a functioning at a very high level, was at a more difficult job with more responsibilities, doing more work. So she's back working, working harder, looks normal, and then is traveling. Right? right. And sometimes internationally. I mean, those kind of things are like, this is not the kind of person whose life is to the point that they need that much recovery. And I think that's, you know, Did some of those... the testimony came out that she had actually gone to Aspen, Colorado right. and tried skiing for the first time. So, right. So, it, and, and a lot of the, you know, and for good reason, the defense focused on that. And then and, and I would too. And, you know, and so I think that like kept the number to a point where it was like, they're just, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, what am I just, am I going to be financing her life of travel? Right. And you know? we have always tried cases where our clients sitting there with us. And this case was no exception. Ironically, we debated and, and we're thinking not to have her there every day, but due to scheduling, she was in the future. Do you think the next, you know, traumatic brain injury case we try, are you going to have the client there? No, absolutely not. I don't think in any case, I'm going to have my client present in trial yeah. because the reality is, is the jury can look at them and they say, you know, if they're uncomfortable sitting in a jury box and our client doesn't look uncomfortable, why are they entitled to money? So I think the only time I'm going to have the client there is, is jury selection, opening statement, and when they testify. That's it. I mean, we had, we had talked about that. That was the plan. But then it, for scheduling reasons, it didn't work. And we thought it would be disrespectful to the jury since she had been there to then stop coming. But 
you know, I, I think that, that it would have been they would have been perceived that she was just having a bad day and didn't come. And I think it would have been even better for us. So, look, you, you always have to learn from trial, learn from the good, the bad and the otherwise. And, you know, it's kind of like put that one to bed, decompress, pick it up and we're on to the next one. You know, we got yeah, speaking of that, we've got another one coming up at the beginning of May. Uh, but we'll probably do another episode here. You're talking about learning. I feel the same way. I, I want to learn from, from my past and I want to focus on the future. Maybe you can foreshadow. I mean, it's not like we have a set itinerary, but what do you hope to accomplish with this podcast in the future? So, I mean, look, man, the reality is, is, you know, yourself, you know, you and I are passionate about trial advocacy, right? Like, I think that the workup is extremely important, but I don't get excited about the workup. I get excited about trial. Right. And no one wants to go to trial. And I think that trial is the great equalizer. So I really want to focus on, you know, learning of about, you know, bringing guests in that 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 talk about trial, that that talk about getting there, the ways they work, handling client interaction, expectations, like all of those kind of things, like a multifaceted approach to the practice of law in a personal injury setting, but with a primary focus on trial. Because I think that, you know, as as the young, younger generation of lawyers come you know, we need to be the ones kind of taking the reins for trial. Like as we're coming up, we're going to be trying more cases. You know, some of the older guys are going to probably stop trying as many cases. Maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't envision myself trying case into my sixties. Like that, that's insane. But I mean, I, as, so I, I think that we can focus on, you know, bringing that, helping fostering growth development, you know, recognition of fears, things that I'm fearful of about trial, about the practice of law, things that I've done and learned over the last 10 years of running my own practice, well, nine years, but, you know, even like early on from school and just kind of watching that development, that growth and to be where we are now, which is much better than we were before, but I don't feel like I'm, you know, to where I want to be. Right. I always want to be doing better and learning. And I think this is kind of how we're going to grow together, you know, kind of thing. So I absolutely agree. And I'm excited about the future. And, um, you know, it takes a, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to get to trial. And there's a lot of stages in that process and steps. And I think we'll touch on those, too, even from you know case management system and what technological tools we're, we're leveraging to to make our jobs more efficient and more effective. And it will cover all those things in the future. But look. It's Friday before holiday, at least in, in my house. And, and I think I have an Easter egg hunt to go with, with my little kids this afternoon. So I'm going to cut out, but I appreciate the time and, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. And I look forward to the next one. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks everyone. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.